Peace be with you. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights. Uh, We're currently walking through a sermon series in the book of John. And and the theme of our sermon series is the theme of the book of John. And, And it comes from the final verse, written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This week we're in chapter 3. It's the story of Nicodemus. Uh, it's really the story of Jesus, but Nicodemus is in there too. Um, to start, though, I, I want you to picture an old man, um, a, a carpenter by trade. And for decades, this man has been building himself a home. He's been building a mansion, actually, um, with his bare hands. And, and this is more than a hobby. It's become his passion. It's a life project. Year after year, he has been pouring himself out to see the home of his dreams. And now in his old age, it's nearly complete. Okay, now imagine this old man is at a dinner party and he meets a young master builder. And the conversation naturally turns to home building and they start talking shop. And and the old man proudly invites the master builder to come and see his soon-to-be home. He's proud to show off his handiwork, and and he's eager to hear from this expert what he might recommend, what modifications he might recommend. A wraparound porch or or a certain type of roofing. But upon arriving, the master builder takes one look at this house, a house that's been decades in the making. And he says, you're going to need to start over. This is a teardown. That's devastating. That would be devastating. To have your life's work deemed worthless, a teardown. Each and every one of us would be annoyed and enraged, um, unbelieving that someone could possibly come and say this about something we've poured so much into. Right? And that's what's happening here in John chapter 3. Jesus, the master builder, is telling Nicodemus, the old man, that his life's work is essentially worthless. It's a teardown. You're going to have to start over. You're going to have to be born again. Let's take a look. Verses 1 through 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. All right, so Jesus' response here sounds like a non sequitur. It sounds off topic. But it's really not. In in the book of John, we see Jesus responding this way to people all the time. In in chapter 2, as we learned last week, Mary comes to Jesus and says, the wine has run out. And Jesus replies, it's not my hour. In chapter 4, Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. And she wants to hear about this living water. And Jesus, Jesus starts asking her about her five marriages. And then in chapter 6, there's a group of people and they come to Jesus and they essentially ask him, um, when did you get here? And he replies, I'm the bread of life. Um, so non sequiturs, right? But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't tell the thirsty Samaritan woman to be born again. 
She tells her, he tells her about living water. And Jesus doesn't tell the hungry crowd to be born again. He tells them about the bread of life. Only when speaking to Nicodemus does Jesus use the metaphor of new birth. Why is that? Why do we think that is? Well, these verses tell us a few things about Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee, which means which means that he taught and practiced a meticulous adherence to the rules and regulations given to the people of Israel by God. He was very moral. In fact, he probably would have been the most morally disciplined person in this room. All right, so he was moral. Number two, he was a ruler of the Jews. This meant that he was a distinguished teacher and a, and a respected religious leader. He operated within the upper echelons of society. He was elite. Nicodemus was moral. Nicodemus was elite. So here we have a guy who spent his entire life building a house, building a moral case before God by obeying God's rules and regulations. He has sincerely attempted to do everything God has asked. And on the surface, he... He was everything we hope our children grow up to be. He was a good guy. Nicodemus was a good man. And he's coming to Jesus at night because Jesus didn't exactly fit the mold the Jews were looking for. Not in a teacher, not in a prophet, and certainly not in the Messiah, in the promised Savior. Nicodemus was afraid to be publicly associated with Jesus. But more importantly, Nicodemus was coming to Jesus in a state of spiritual night, spiritual darkness. It was, it was nighttime in Nicodemus' soul. He's interested in what Jesus has to say, but he's not particularly open to the truth. He's curious about Jesus, but he's not yet ready to label him that Messiah, that promised Savior. And perhaps, perhaps this is you. Perhaps you are here this morning because you're just curious. Who is this Jesus guy, really, and, and what does he have to say? Does he have anything to say to me? Or maybe you've even stepped into a neighborhood parish already, and, and you're a bit torn. You're beginning to wonder, are Christians actually kind and generous and humble like Jesus, or are they just weird? And, you know, depending upon the neighborhood parish, the answer might be both. Um, and those are fair questions. Nicodemus had fair questions too, but before he could even ask them, Jesus answers him with this. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Your house is a teardown, Nicodemus. You're going to have to start over. It doesn't matter whether you live in a shack or a mansion. It doesn't matter whether you are the most moral person or the least moral person. Your morality amounts to nothing when it comes to seeing the kingdom of God. Now again, Nicodemus was an Israelite, and, and the predominant Jewish understanding at this time was that, um, apart from a few exceptions, all of the Jews would see the kingdom of God. So it's absolutely scandalous that Jesus would say to Nicodemus, a respected religious leader, that even he must be born again. 
According to Nicodemus, the kingdom was his by birthright as a Jew. And technically, technically Jesus agrees with him. Technically, Jesus agrees that the kingdom is his by birthright, only Jesus insists that it's a second birth birthright. So let's take care to understand what Jesus means. What does it mean to be born again? After all, I, I think the phrase born again, it, it has some baggage in our culture. It, it's common. Um, if you follow politics, if you read election polls, you've probably read the term born again. In 2014, 50% of American Christians described themselves as born again. In 1976, during the presidential campaign, Jimmy Carter became the first American politician to describe himself as born again in an interview with Playboy magazine. Four years later, in 1980, all three major presidential candidates self-described as born again. And then Ronald Reagan won that election with 61% of the born-again white Protestant vote. So it has baggage. There's baggage associated with this phrase, cultural and political baggage. But what did Jesus mean by it? It's important that we know what Jesus meant by it because Jesus is saying it applies to all of us, and it's essential to see the kingdom of God. What did he mean? Unfortunately for Nicodemus, he, he didn't have this full gospel of John that we have. He, he couldn't turn back to chapter 1, like we're about to, and understand what Jesus was saying. Chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will, nor of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, born of God. In other words, to be born again, to be born of God, is to believe in the name of Jesus. Elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus emphasizes the necessity of faith and humility and brokenness. But here, here Jesus is emphasizing our need for complete transformation. For a new life that's only possible through the Holy Spirit of God. Even so, even so, when Jesus expounds on the new birth idea in verse 5, Nicodemus, a teacher of Israel, should have caught on to what he was saying. Verse 5, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Water and the Spirit. Being born again is being born of water and the Spirit. This imagery is rooted in the Israelite scriptures, the, the Old Testament. It comes from Ezekiel 36. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and, I, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. New birth is transformation. And this transformation is not something we will ourselves into. God sprinkles us. God makes us clean. God frees us 
from our idols. God gives us new hearts and spirits. God causes us to walk in his statutes, to obey his rules. No matter, no matter how moral you were, no matter how moral you are, no matter how moral you will be, new birth is absolutely essential. But if you are moral and elite, new birth is essential. No matter who you are, new birth is essential. Nobody is exempt from this requirement. All must receive the gift of new birth. But we aren't, we aren't very good at receiving it. I'm not very good at receiving it. Even, even for those of us who, who maybe have in the past received the gift of new birth, the, the blessings and benefits of that new birth remain theoretical for us. Okay, so I have two questions. Number one, what prevents us from being born again? And number two, once new birth is given, what prevents us from, from truly enjoying its benefits? What prevents us from being born again? Number one, put simply, unbelief. Unbelief prevents us from being born again. The master builder has come and he has condemned the house we're building, but we refuse to hear him. Or maybe we do hear his criticism but we don't then hear his gracious offer to rebuild it free of charge. And so we just, we just give up. And I know this wasn't in our reading, but, but that's what verse 17 is telling us. Jesus wasn't sent to condemn you. He was sent to build the home of your dreams. But he won't do it until you acknowledge that the house you are currently building is a teardown. For the non-Christian, new birth looks like letting the master builder take charge and rebuild your house from the foundation up, and he delights to do it. He delights to do it. Question number two, once new birth is given, what prevents us from truly enjoying its benefits? And the answer is the same, unbelief. Although we as Christians are willing to admit that the buildings we are building are teardowns, we'd rather the master builder just come and make a few repairs. We'd rather Jesus be our sidekick. We'd rather meet him in the middle. I'll be the most moral person I can be and the cross can make up the difference, right? And no one, no one would ever say that so explicitly, but it's how I live my life. And I think it's how lots of us live our lives. Jesus will not have his good name associated with my shoddy moral craftsman, moral craftsmanship. My shoddy moral craftsmanship. He didn't suffer the cross to pick up my slack he suffered the cross to make me brand new and to make you brand new. And this is what the Apostle Paul is talking about in Philippians 3. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul was building a house, and it was a good house. But he counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul acknowledged that that house was a teardown. Paul put the master builder in charge and, then, and from then on out, 
Paul just obeyed the master builder. You tell me what to do. By God's grace, by God's grace, we get to see this transformation in Nicodemus as well. Paul's new birth was dramatic. Grace knocked him off of his horse. For Nicodemus, um, new birth came slowly and methodically. Grace ran him down. In chapter 3, Nicodemus is incredulous. He cannot believe Jesus is saying this to him. But then in chapter 19, after the crucifixion of Christ, Nicodemus brings 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes to prepare the lifeless body of Christ for burial. 75 pounds. Some people estimate that that would have been worth about $200,000. Nicodemus was burying his king in chapter 19. So what changed his mind? What what happened between chapter 3 and chapter 19 that convinced Nicodemus that Jesus was more than just a good teacher? I think the answer is in verse 14. Beginning in verse 14, Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is referring here to a brief, obscure story from the Old Testament. Um, it's from the book of Numbers, and the people of Israel were plagued by venomous serpents. And many people were dying, so God tells Moses to fashion a bronze serpent, hoist it up on a pole, and then whenever an Israelite is bitten, they can look to that bronze serpent and be healed. Super obscure, super short in the book of Numbers. But Nicodemus would have known this story very well. And so essentially, Jesus is telling him, new birth is given to all who see me lifted up and believe in me for their healing. Look and live, Nicodemus. Look and receive new birth. So what changed Nicodemus' mind? In John chapter 19, Jesus was crucified. Nicodemus watched as Jesus was lifted up on a pole on a cross. Jesus became the bronze serpent in the wilderness, and for Nicodemus, everything began to make sense. Now, the serpent wasn't gold or silver. It was just bronze. And likewise, Jesus came to earth humbly and emptied of majesty. And the bronze serpent was, was made in the form of a real serpent. Like Jesus came in the form of sinful flesh, but not, not filled with the venom and evil that we all have in us. And so, so Nicodemus saw Jesus upon that cross, and he believed. He received new birth. He looked to the bronze serpent lifted up for his healing, and he chose life. Look and live. Look and live. Right now, in this moment, look and live. Believe. When we admit our need for new birth, 
And we say, yeah, that is a teardown. And we allow the master builder to take over our lives. It makes us into the best kind of people. And I, I know that's a bold statement. Please hear me out. When we trust in Jesus to build our moral case before God, we can use power without abusing power. As one who will one day see the kingdom, I don't need, I know the best is yet to come, and so I don't need power and prestige in this life. And if for some reason God gives me power and prestige, I can steward that power on behalf of the powerless. When we trust in Jesus to build our moral case before God, we can love others without needing their approval in return. Because my acceptance is rooted in Jesus' morality, not my own. I can love others with pure motive. Plus, this means I no longer have to live with the shame and guilt that I do live with on account of the immoral things I've done. When we trust in Jesus to build our moral case before God, we can relinquish control and simply enjoy life. The master builder is in charge now, and he knows what he's doing. So come what may, I don't need to be in control. Someone wiser and more loving and more powerful than me is in charge. He's orchestrating everything. Which means when we trust in Jesus to build our moral case before God, we can take joy in every circumstance. Throughout life's ups and downs and happiness and in sorrow and suffering, we can have lasting joy because both the good and the bad are welling up to a glorious future reality. I don't, I don't need to purchase comfort for myself when the home of my dreams is nearly complete. So as we close, there's, there's one more thing I'd like to reiterate. Second birth is the work of God. Second birth isn't yours to accomplish any more than your first birth was yours to accomplish. Someone else carries you. Someone else labors for you. Someone else delivers you into a new world and nurtures you in your state of helplessness. And by the way, this, this speaks to the intrinsic dignity of childbirth. This is a side note. Ladies, I, I know childbirth is painful. I've seen it. But you are laboring so that someone else might live. It's painful because it's a beautiful demonstration of the gospel. So our second birth is the work of God. It's God's to give. But that doesn't mean we're helpless. If anything, it should give us confidence. If you're here this morning and you do not believe, if you've yet to place your trust in Jesus for eternal life and healing, you don't have to mosey out of here wondering whether God is going to grant that to you. You just need to believe. Just believe. It's not an accident that you are here this morning. There are millions of Houstonians who will not hear the good news of the gospel this morning, and that's tragic. That's tragic. But you are here. God has brought you here. God is calling you. 
So don't you question whether he wants you. He wants you. He wants you. Look to Jesus and believe. Believe that he is who he says he is. Believe that he was lifted up for your healing. If we could come to understand the peril of our sin, like the Israelites understood the peril of those serpents, we would never cease to look to Christ lifted up for our healing. We would repent early and often. You who are caught in sin, look to Christ upon the cross. You who are trodden down by the weight of brokenness in this world, look to Christ upon the cross. You who fear death, look to Christ upon the cross. You who live with the, with the pain of chronic illness, look to Christ upon the cross. You who are living with guilt and shame and insecurity and loneliness, look to Christ upon the cross. He was lifted up for you. This week, I, I want you to take some time to imagine that you are that you are snake bitten. The venom is in your bloodstream, and you are without hope. From that place, look to Christ lifted up for your healing. Believe and be. And having said all that, I, I think we can now understand the context in which the most famous verse in the New Testament was written. Verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, whoever, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus is your only hope. And that may be offensive but I can say it because that truth is rooted in the love of God, God's love for you. Jesus is your only hope, so look to him and live. At this very moment, this morning, look to Christ and live, please. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Um, thank you for unfolding your plan for us to see, for revealing yourself. You did, not, you did not have to create us, and yet you did. And we messed it up. But we thank you, Jesus, for coming, um, for coming so humbly, for coming as an example for us. Thank you for, for being obedient even to death, for being lifted up, on a cross for our healing. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would apply the blessings of our new birth in all of their fullness. Let us live in joy, knowing that we have been transformed and we will see the kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.